Welcome to Inside the Tunnel, brought to you by VT Scoop 24-7 Sports. My name is Andrew Alex, joined today by the full gang, Matasis, Doug Bowman, Evan Watkins, in the house, ready to recap the season that was. It was a season of football that was played by the Virginia Tech Hokies, and when it comes down to the wins and losses, it was one of the least successful in decades but that being said just year one i know this team underperformed all of our expectations because you know i i saw what all of our expectations were coming into the year and even negative andrew was at six and six solid three wins above the final win total so Go for it, gentlemen. Free-flowing. Explain it. Find the negatives. Find the positives. And tell me where we go from here. I do want to I do want to caveat my prediction that was the most bullish of the group, where I said in my note-taking that I could see this team winning anywhere from four to eight games. I was still overachieving at four. I did not think three would be would be the answer. But yeah, I mean there's not really much to say it just that it sucked on all on all levels right like nothing positives Mansour Delane and Daquan Wright those are my positives we'll pass that on to 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 Doug and Mate for theirs yeah we talked about it all all season I felt it was the same before the season we were talking about how we just wanted to see at the very least we wanted to see improvement from September to November. I don't know that we got quite got to that. Uh, Virginia Tech's offense was essentially the same for most most of the year. You can debate whether that was quarterback Grant Wells, the wide receivers, the offensive line. At certain times, it was probably a combination of all three. Um, but the offense just wasn't good enough, consistent enough. Um, but they were an offense that was going to have to generate a ton of big plays to to be successful and they just weren't talented enough to do that. Um, which is why it was, I think, you know, a bottom 10 offense and all of FBS, which is pretty difficult to do as a power five unit. But, um, that was a story and, and the defense kind of held up, had a couple, you know, shaky moments. Abanacanda is still running. I think for Pitt, um, comes to mind as one of them, but, uh, I think, I think the offense ultimately just asks, the defense to to do too much over the course of the season. You saw that play out in a, a handful of games. And then, you know, I think one of the big stories that emerged that wasn't quite expecting was um, the coaching management of games and decisions. I don't think anybody expected um, the penalties and the, um, the game management adjustments that um, that would be required under a first year head coach. Yeah, I think in in total, you guys summed it up pretty well. It just from the coaches to the players, it just it didn't live up to anyone's expectations. And, you know, even today, as we're recording on November 29th, they came out with the all ACC honors and there's six guys that are honorable mention for the first time since 1991 or quite maybe right before then. Um, no Virginia Tech players on any all ACC team or, you know, all conference team. Um, the talent wasn't there. The coaches 
certainly wish they could have done things differently. And like we heard Brent Pry speak at the postseason wrap up, you know, he's going to have a lot of conversations. Um, it sounds like the coaching staff is is staying intact, which, you know, leads you to believe that a lot of this was the roster he inherited. Was it talented enough? Probably not. I think we all thought that no matter if this was the least talented Virginia Tech team we've seen in the last decade, there was still the possibility that the floor was six wins, that, you know, it's a perennial program that has consistently made bowl games and, you know, essentially in a weaker ACC Coastal Division that they would find a way, and that just wasn't the case. So it, it sounds like, you know, the season is very much one to forget, and it sounds like moving forward, there's going to be a lot of roster construction um, and, and changing up a lot of things moving forward. When it comes to the All-ACC team, I actually want to jump in here because I, I was texting with somebody earlier that had this question of, if Monsor Delane had been healthy and played since day one, would he have made all ACC? I think he would have. I want to stamp that claim now. I think that he would have made all ACC. So what 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 does the group think? And him and him and Strong, if Strong didn't get hurt, could Strong have made it? You know, if Malachi had played all year, could he have made it? Like you look at it, you think it sucks. Nobody nobody made the uh, all ACC team, and talent is down and. I've said that since week one, there's a major talent deficiency on this team, but I think those three guys probably could have staked a claim to at least have made an all ACC team had they played a full season. I'll say this, like, I don't know if because Monsor Delane got those games in the beginning of the season, whether I think it was the first four games he didn't play in, and then he played the last eight, started four of them. I don't know if that was a reason for him to develop enough to play, to learn the system, to know what he has to do. That could be it. I, I think I'm more on board with the fact that if Dorian Strong were healthy all year, he would probably end up on an all-ACC team. But it, it doesn't take away anything from Monsor. I just, like, that's one of the th – I don't know if he would have been – like, if you throw out a true freshman in his first game – you're playing against ODU and we saw how that turned out, you know, would he have made a difference in that game? What if the moment was too big? Like, I don't know how to answer those questions. Would, would the coaching staff lose confidence in him and then turn to someone else? Um, and I think he needed that opportunity when you're talking about Dorian Strong, Armani Chapman, Breon Murray, like in the beginning of the year, those were the three guys. Like it's unfortunate that it took an injury to kind of see him uh, earn his spotlight, but, you know, that was I don't I don't know how he gets on the field if that doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely one of those impossibilities to go back. And wonder, but, you know, all ACC honors be damned, like at least it is a positive sign for the future. What you did see out of Monsoor Delane when he was in was. You know, a, a positive revelation going forward and unfortunately for this virginia tech team like you know, we have a long time to ponder 2022 season or to and look ahead to 2023 but i i just don't see a hugely long list of positives that came out of this thing seems like you could count them on one hand and 
you just got to hope that, you know, another full off season with some of these younger guys is going to start pushing forward and a coaching staff who could figure it out. Because, you know, like you mentioned, Doug, you definitely, and I, I think that it's something that Virginia Tech fans should have been prepared for. You definitely had to expect some hiccups from a coaching staff with just generally not that much experience. Brent Pry never having been a head coach before, first-year coordinator, you know, first-year play caller in Tyler Bowen, but it could have been better. You know, Mike Elko had never been a head coach either. And maybe it's about hiring the right people around you. I don't know. But the staff is staying intact. So you have to hope for growth in that regard, like serious growth. Because I've heard this once. I've heard this a a thousand times from people who probably don't want to put it in writing on the Internet. But would Justin Fuente have only won three games with this team? Oh, don't think that wasn't heavily talked about on the on the message boards. <laughs> People definitely were willing to put that on the internet. I, I mean, I think it's a valid question. I think uh, when you when you look at that as a whole, I think Justin points they probably would have won more than three games. But I also think he would have limited what the or what the ceiling is. Like we know what the ceiling was with Fuente. We knew what it was on the recruiting trail. We knew what it was on the field. So a change had to happen. Uh, kind of. You know, I think for for all Virginia Tech fans and followers and listeners out there, I mean, obviously it it sucked that it had to get to a three win season, but you know, you I, you would expect we're looking at the floor here, and everything else goes up if they can get an influx of talent in uh, from the transfer portal, and then like you said, the young guys over the summer getting year, a year in the weight room, um, you know, under a new strength staff getting. Um, cutting some of the dead weight, you know, the the, the downside or the, the dark side of the transfer portal is only going to help Virginia Tech in the future. So, you know, I think I think Fuente would have won more in the short term, probably in this year, but I don't know that he would do enough potentially to to put the trajectory back to where it needs to be. And I think everybody right now is clinging to the hope that Pry can get this thing turned around. Yeah, I mean, to me, the big question there is like, is Tyler Bowen, and this, this is going to sound a little crazy here, but is Tyler Bowen a better offensive coordinator than Prad Cornelson? Um, that to me, that's what it came down to this season, and and it certainly wasn't there uh, for all Cornelson's flaws and quarterback uh, management issues. Um, he still managed to put a decent offense on the field last season or a, you know, a better offense in this one with a severely limited Braxton Burmeister quarterback. Um, he, he, he turned around the offense in 2019 by switching to Hinton hooker and, and, and changing things up from what, from what they'd originally intended. So, you know, I think all the pressures on Tyler Bowen at this point to get, that I think, you know, the defense appears to be in good shape. It was the top 50 unit this year, a, a slight improvement over last year. Not a big surprise given Brent Pry's um, background, but you know, it's all eyes on the offense this offseason and, and, and how different it looks. Like how much of this year's offense was personnel 
dictated and was was what Bowen was calling simply the only options. Was it just was it the best they could do? Um or is that legitimately the best, the most threatening, the most um efficient, but like is is that what he is and his offense looks like as a play caller long term? I don't think I don't think they did a good job, you know, across the board offensively, and that's a big part of it. So whether how much improvement, you know, they were I think a hundred and eighteenth in in offense and in SP plus or whatever it is. Um so how much improvement is enough to get to, you know, five or six or seven wins next year, I think is the question. Whether and whether Tyler Bowen is that guy, it's I mean, the leash can't be that long next year, um, after 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 a season like this. So, you know, I, I think Virginia Tech has gone a long time without a lot of coaching turnover and it is a little more conservative than most programs in terms of sticking with guys and all that stuff. But I think the offensive staff like has to be on notice this, this off season and going into next that it's like, like Brett probably can't afford to wait around for the offensive coaching staff to figure it out much longer than next year. It's interesting, right? Because you look at the, uh, the Cornelson offense and I think what the Cornelson offense was able to pull out and pull off from time to time is they were able to do more with less. It would bring less talented players to the mean, but it would also limit the abilities of your most talented players. It was a predicted outcomes offense. You know, on the contrary, you hear Brent Pry talk at the presser on Tuesday. And he mentioned, I think we tried to do too much too soon with guys that weren't ready. And yes, perhaps the predicted outcomes offense could have provided a little bit more stability and ultimately that would translate to wins, especially in the games with the narrow margins of Georgia Tech, NC State, Old Dominion and the like. But, I mean, make no mistake, you could have Nick Saban and whoever coaching this team. I I don't think they're winning that North Carolina game. I don't. Yeah, at the same time, as I try to make this point, you you go back and you think about Pitt and West Virginia, and, you know, Virginia Tech lost a lot of games, and they didn't play a lot of world beaters. And... Were they the least talented of the bunch? I'm sure you could make an argument, but you know, th- th- there is blame to fall on the shoulders of the coaching staff as well. And I'm not here to suggest you give up on that, give up on them, because they're certainly not going anywhere in the near term. But you know, you you have to hope that this coaching staff can you know, walk and chew gum at the same time in multiple regards, right? Recruit, not just the high school kids, but the transfer portal going to be super important and develop who you have and be introspective about your own decisions because, you know, at, at three wins, there's no shortage of 
areas for improvement. <laughs> you know, one of the things that I think was interesting with this offense as as bad as it was and I think you know when you try to create a power run type of offense which seems like it's exactly what Pry is trying to do with Joe Rudolph and and the like you try to create that without power runner right like like Malachi is kind of your power back um he goes down you have Jalen Holston who has never really been consistent, never really found his footing, never really been the power back. So instead you, you go out and you trot out Keyshawn King, who's explosive as can be, but you try to run him in a way that's not conducive to him or to his abilities. And then, you know, you go, you know, three, four five games down the road and you think, Oh, Keyshawn King can actually run an outside zone and he's breaking off 20 yard clips. So I think it's really you know, it was one of those things with the offense where I think for this offense to look productive or to be productive this year, all cylinders had to hit and had to hit exactly right. And that's just too much to ask for a full rebuild like this. Like you had no true one wide, re- wide receiver one. You know, we talked about that preseason. I think Caleb Smith was a good right, wide receiver. I don't want to take anything away from him. I think he's... You know, I think he showed a ton of talent this year that we hadn't seen before, but he's probably still a number two receiver. He's not he's not really your number one guy. They didn't have one. So you don't have that. You don't have a James Mitchell type of tight end until, uh, you know, five weeks in, six weeks in when Daquan Wright kind of shows up on the scene and starts to make some big plays uh, in the in the passing game. You don't have true a true running back because malachi gets hurt Keyshawn king is i mean as as good as he is and explosive as he is he's 180 pounds 190 pounds and he's fragile um chance black doesn't look like a natural wide or running back to me he looks like a wide receiver jalen holston still was still so inconsistent even though he's been in the system for so long and in the in the program for so long Uh, you have bryce duke who looked you know, he showed some flashes here and there, but he'd also get blown up on blocking assignments. And so it's like everything had to hit right for this to work, for this power run game, Big Ten style of offense to grind out games and win. And when it didn't work, it was way too much stress on the defense. You had Grant Wells, you know, cowboying it up in the first game, throwing four interceptions. And that has to get into your head as a as a quarterback that you know your leash is getting shorter by the minute and you're you're throwing turnover after turnover uh you know and then he's probably i would assume he was overthinking for most of the year he already had some questions that i had coming from marshall was if he gets rattled or if he gets down is he the type of quarterback to come back from? Because I didn't, I didn't think he was when I saw it at Marshall, and I still don't think he is. I think that's a big issue for Virginia Tech. If Wells is going to be your guy, you got to have a lead early. He can't get rattled. If he gets rattled, bad things happen. So I think it was – I kind of agree with Pry that it was too much too soon of them trying to force feed this Big Ten power run game 
for the future, I kind of love it for Virginia Tech. I think that it, it it's a system that could fit the recruiting footprint, but for this year without the right pieces, like it was, it was kind of just a, you know, it was a four hour stomach ache every Saturday watching this offense try to go out and do something that was not going to happen. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see, like Doug said, this off season is going to be really important for that offense. I think the defense can continue to take steps forward, but this offense, I mean, it was, it was awful. You know, I think any way it goes, it has to go up. I don't think it can get any worse, uh, but they're going to have to show some leaps and bounds improvements over the, the winter and the spring going into next fall, because if they don't, uh, this is just going to be ugly after ugly and, and Brent Price tenure is going to be kind of on the clock at that point. I, I think Evan touched on a little bit. I'm really curious. This is getting way ahead of us, but like next season, like how much improvement does the offense need to make to, to see significant improvement in the win column? Um, they were 107th or 106th in offense this year, according to FEI. That's the lowest it's been since 2014, all through the Cornelson era. The lowest, I mean, he was pretty consistently in the 40s, 50s, down to 77 in, in 2021. So, like, is getting back to 2021 level offense, is that a, how, how much of a difference does that make in the win column when, when you're, going from you know historically bad to just like generally bad um is, is that too low of expectation for offense next year given the current personnel i would say no because like we talked about at the beginning of this podcast like there's there's not many glaring positives that you can build an offense around next year daquan Wright, yes impressive still a true freshman that was playing limited snaps at the end of the season. Um, Malachi Thomas was never healthy. Keyshawn King, as impressive as he was when he was healthy, he was banged up throughout the year. Like, I, I don't know how much, um, how many positives there are to where you can expect much improvement offensively um, without a serious influx of talent, which is, you know, I, by all indications, it's what they're going to try and do. Um, Pride said today that he wants he wants competition in the quarterback room. So, I mean, that generally answers our Grant Wells question about whether he's still the guy. I think I think it would be difficult. I think to imagine him um, winning the job again, unless they, you know, bring unless they don't bring in anybody or or it's somebody that's not at. Um, the power five level. So I think we'll see what happens over the next, especially these next three or four weeks are going to be key with the portal and how, how the, the whole appearance of the roster changes. And then, you know, I think it's a legitimate question at that point of whether this offensive staff after misevaluating what was going to be successful with the first offense is, is the right staff or can get it right here in year two. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm with you, Doug. I think like when you look at, you know, if if Caleb Smith, uh, he's eligible to return. If he does return, that's that's fantastic. But he shouldn't be your number one receiver. So you have to go get a big receiver out of the the portal. 
Keyshawn King is super explosive, but he's also been in the program for three or four years. You know what to expect out of him now. Like he's explosive. He can run outside zone. He can sometimes be an inside type of runner, but he's not an every down type of back. He's shifty out of the backfield would be a perfect third down type of a scat back guy. So you need a running back potentially out of the portal. You look at the O-line, you know, some of the O-linemen started to take a little bit of a step forward. I thought Braylon in his limited ability in his limited time showed some good abilities. I thought Xavier Chaplin did at times in that one game he played, but those guys need a, at least another year in the weight room. So, you know, you're you're going to have to go out and find a tackle to replace Silas, you know, especially uh especially on the left side. So, you're going to have to get those three. It, it, you know, you potentially you should should be looking at a quarterback to make that competition stronger and make Wells prove he's the guy or bring in somebody that's going to be the guy. So you have to bring in a quarterback too. You know, you got you look at the tight end room, Drake's gone and Nick Gallo has the chance to come back, but he also has the chance uh, that he he could hang it up. He could walk away. He could do a number of different things. Um but if he does, like let's say that Nick doesn't come back, you have a tight end room of Daquan Wright who hasn't played a single snap in line. He's only been in the slot. He didn't play a single pass block down this year. He's got a huge future, but he's he's a Bucky Hodges tight end in name. That he's more of a wide receiver than than a tight end. He's not going to be your blocker. You got uh, Harrison St. Germain who played in three games on special teams have no idea what he could be in the offense. And then you got Benji coming off his second ACL injury in two years. Great athlete, but can he recover mentally and physically from that to be what he was pre-injuries? If if Nick Gallo leaves, you got to get a tight end out of the portal because you can't just have three young guys that are relatively still unproven. Two-thirds are still unproven in the – the one third that's somewhat proven only played like 160 snaps. So you got to get a tight end. You're looking at replacing at least one person on every offensive position and possibly bringing in more than one wide receiver, possibly bringing in more than one offensive line. That's how this offense can show improvement. It's not going to be homegrown at this point. They have to get some guys processed out to make some room and bring in some Band-Aid fixes so that Joe Rudolph can recruit the O-linemen that he wants and get them in the system and give them time to marinate. We know he had never traveled a true freshman before he got to Virginia Tech. We know he's not going to play many of them. You know, he, he played two this year, very, very minimal snaps, kept him under the redshirt limit. So... You're, he he's going to be one of these guys that brings the O-lineman in and marinates them for a few years in the weight room and in the, the on the scout team before letting them really get a rip at it. You can get some wide receivers that can play early. You might even be able to get some running backs that can come in and play early out of, uh, out of high school, but they're going to have to hit every offensive position in the portal and hit them hard. Uh, or this thing's not going to take a step forward. They just don't have the talent to take it forward. And if you add that to, you know, what we saw schematically, some things I loved schematically, uh, some things I hated that that they were doing this year. 
but if you look at it, this scheme is not going to win the games. You've got to have talent to run in this scheme, and they're going to have to hit the portal hard. Evan, a couple of questions regarding that. Number one being, you talk about getting wide receiver talent. Given the uncertainty at quarterback, doesn't that become extremely more difficult? You know, if, if you're a wide receiver trying to transfer from point A to point B, right, don't you want point B to have a quarterback that you know can deliver you the ball, make you look good, and, you know, all these guys want to end up having their shot at the league one day, give you a better chance of getting to that point, flash your abilities. So does Virginia Tech need to, if they want to improve on the outside, have to, you know, lock down that quarterback here within these next few weeks? And B, you mentioned the offensive line. Obviously, no shortage of spaces on that line where you could make an upgrade. But isn't that the most difficult position to upgrade through the portal, at least from what we've seen? I feel like you don't see big-time offensive line transfers from year to year. Honestly, some of the bigger-time offensive line transfers we've seen historically are you know, Doug Nestor and Brian Hudson leaving Virginia Tech. Yeah, I think I think to answer the first question, I think you definitely need a quarterback or you're going to get transfers that are like a Steven Gosnell, a guy that's been kind of covered up in his in his early years at a school and hasn't had a chance to play simply because the guy that's ahead of him is an NFL talent kind of guy. So, you know, maybe you can find some guys like that or some guys that are just looking for a new home, maybe a one-year type of guy that says, I want to come in for a year. What's your path for me to the NFL? And I think that is a tougher sell in my excuse me, in my opinion, out of Virginia Tech than selling Grant Wells or selling quarterback stability is Virginia Tech doesn't have many wide receivers that they've put in the league historically. They don't have many that have done a whole lot in the league. I mean, you look at Isaiah Ford broke all those records at Tech and had a long, a long kind of drought in the NFL on scout team and practice squad before he really got a chance. You had Trey Turner, you had Cam Phillips. You know, these guys are guys that were really talented college football players that either had a tough time transitioning to the NFL or didn't transition to the NFL. That's hard to sell. You know, if you're going, if you're looking at North Carolina and their wide receivers in the league and they run a pass happy offense that, um, you know, is, is fun and electric to play in. I mean, and then you look at Virginia tech and their history, you're probably going to lean going to the Tar Heels there. I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty self-explanatory there. So, you know, I think you have to be looking for the right fit, the right kind of people that are looking for a better opportunity than what they're in and may not have that upper tier possibilities out there or the tier up there that that schools are willing to say, hey, we're going to throw the ball, you know, 40, 50 times. Uh, and we want you to come out and be wide receiver one. You look maybe you look for the guys that are uh, going to be more of a role player to, until you can groom some of the homegrown talent into being big time wide receivers or being players in the system. And when it comes to O line, I'll throw another wrench in there. I think you're absolutely right that O line is very difficult to bring out of the portal. 
you can look at high school rankings and you can look at stars and you can get lost in some of this stuff and say, oh, they need to go after this guy or, oh, they need to go after this guy because of what they did in high school. Uh, personally, I throw all that crap out the window when a player is on campus. That doesn't matter anymore. The big thing that matters is Joe Rudolph runs a, a, a an offensive blocking system that not every school runs. So he's, you know, he's not going to go and get some of these guys that are, you know, kind of plowers. You know, he wants the guys that can get out in space and move and pin and pull uh, and and are heady enough to be able to get to the second level on the outside and and understand how he wants his offense run. So, you know, he's not he, he may not be going out and trying to get. You know, people say, oh, go get the third string left tackle from Alabama and he'd be an instant upgrade at Virginia Tech. Well, not if they don't run the same system and he may not be what he's looking for. So, you know, I think uh, with with Rudolph, the thing that I've kind of keyed in on and been really interested in is what happens with Wisconsin? You know, because they underwent the coaching change too. Are they going to have some alignment that decide to look around and if they do that's a perfect opportunity in my opinion that that he could go in and, and try to get somebody that he recruited there he coached there he's running the same system at virginia tech bring them in finish the career under him he's got a pedigree that speaks to itself he's got a resume as as of nfl players as long as anybody could probably imagine that's what he needs to be selling and going out and finding the guys that fit the system really well for him. So, you know, I think for, for there, there's people on the message boards and people that are listening that probably will think, oh, I want you to go get an O-line from Clemson or Ohio State or Alabama or, you know, the USC Trojans, whatever, because they're the, the best programs and the blue bloods that are, you know, pumping out all this talent. But if they're not what he is specifically looking for and they're not athletic enough to run his O-line, it's not going to matter, right? And that's kind of the big the big difference with what Vice was doing versus what Rudolph wants to do uh, and, and how it will be interesting to see how many O-linemen leave now and leave over the next couple of years because they, they don't really fit what he wants to do while he's kind of home-growing. Uh, these guys he'll bring in with like the 23, 24, 25 class, red shirt them, get them in, in the weight room for a year, year, maybe two. And then you start to see them play later on in their careers. That's always kind of been his MO wherever he's been. Uh, so I'm really interested to see how they navigate th those waters. But O-line is hard to evaluate out of high school. It's hard to evaluate out of the portal. Your bona fide NFL studs that are entering the portal are going to go to your blue blood programs. So you have to be you have to be uh, able to identify the guys, maybe coming from FCS, maybe coming from G five, maybe coming from lower power fives, but that can run what you want to run. Are mobile, are able to get outside, run a little bit, pin pull, and run the offensive line system that he wants to run. Because if you if you don't run it, he's overly picky. We've seen it in recruiting. He offers five, six, seven, eight guys. He goes out. He tries to get all of them or as many of them as he can. He's not a guy that goes out and offers 40 offensive linemen to sign three. If he wants to sign three, he might offer six, you know, to, to make sure he gets that 50%. So 
I think uh, I think we'll see him be picky, but I think they know that they have to improve on the offensive line, and this is the best way to do it. JUCO and Portal, and with Virginia Tech's academic uh, requirements, JUCO is, is pretty difficult these days. The other thing with Tech's offensive line is they got – they they got lucky this year that nobody got hurt. Um, they they we talked about it entering the season as one of the big question marks of like who's the sixth or seventh offensive lineman, and we really only saw a a sixth guy emerge at left guard by behind Jesse Hansen splitting time there. Schickster, Schick uh, sh- coming in a little bit, um, especially once they redshirted Braylon Moore, but like there was. There's obviously no depth in Joe Rudolph's mind this year because he didn't play any. Um, there was very minimal depth. And it, even if you look at the numbers of the, the, the PFF grades of the starters that were returning starters, Clements, Caden Moore, Johnny Jordan, and Silas Jancy, they're all roughly 10 points below where they were um, in 2021. It was a regression across the board. I think that speaks a little bit to what Evan was talking about as far as like the, the challenge of taking a portal lineman and expecting significant upgrades um, immediately. Like it doesn't seem like at least, at least after one year, it doesn't seem likely under, under Joe Rudolph. It's, it's going to take a little bit of development to get there um, based, based on what happened this year. So, you know, in the, Maybe maybe they're looking for more depth pieces this year, just just to have in case, and and you'd largely be turning it over to Xavier Chaplin and Braylon Moore, and the returners next year are what they're going to be counting on to take a step forward. Um, you know, we saw that with Parker Clements at the very end of the year. Uh, I was looking at this today that first first eight games of the year he was dead last in the ACC among offensive tackles, like number twenty seven out of twenty seven. Um, per PFF, his last three games. Granted, it's against like Georgia Tech and Liberty and Duke. Although Duke was one of the best teams in the country this year, um, but he was the number three offensive tackle in the ACC down the stretch in, in in those three in those last three games. So you know, is that progress? I think it's a little on the fence of whether that qualifies, but um, I, I think there's value to exp- it returning experience in the guys that have at least been in the program versus expecting too much from from a transfer portal guy to come in from day one and, and significantly be an upgrade under Joe Rudolph. Yeah, I think if you look at if you look at replacing players, you can I mean let's let's throw a triple option out the window because that often sucks. Um I'm sure I just made some people mad. It's fun to watch. It's so um, yeah, it's not fun to watch either. Sorry. <laughs> if if you're a if you're a wide receiver you can pretty much plug and play almost anywhere. If you can run a route tree, you can run a route tree. It doesn't matter if you're running it in Idaho or you're running it in Virginia or you're running it, you know, in Georgia or whatever. If you're a running back, you you already have those skill sets. Now there's obviously you could be a power back or or you know a scat back or you know those types of differences, but you already have that. If you're if you're a quarterback, you as long as you have the IQ and the arm strength, you can pretty much play in different systems, right? You just have to know the system and know the terminology. But if you're an O lineman, it's not as easy to plug and play those 300 pounders, right? Like 
these guys are the athletes of athletes. You want a guy that's being 320 pounds but can move and has really good lateral agility, um, can run really good 10-yard sprints uh, or 10-yard splits. Like those aren't hard or those aren't easy to find. These are these are the anomalies of the the you know the, the anomalies of American high school students. These are the anomalies of of football players, right? Like these guys that are so big and so fast and so agile. And Joe Rudolph is is once a very small subset of that. So he's very picky. He's very particular. It's going to be interesting to see. He only targeted, I believe, one transfer last year before the season. Um, the guy who who went from Cornell, I want to say, up to Penn State was was kind of the only alignment that he even targeted in the portal last year. Um, this year, I'm I'm sure he will target more, but. He likes to keep his hit rates and his percentages pretty low. So if he targets a, hand, a small handful, I expect them to be guys he fully goes in on. Any final thoughts? I mean, as, as we look to guys who are going to leave the program, obviously, you know, aforementioned a number of guys. Of course, there'll be a number of names who leave simply because of roster space. Is there anyone that you guys have heard anything about that might surprise I stick with the same you know people ask me this every week uh, in Teradome and on the message board of who I'm hearing leaving like we hear rumors all the time we hear names all the time of people that are possibly leaving but in my position it does me and it does VT scoop no good for me to say XYZ is rumored to be leaving because if that player doesn't leave I've already put that in your head that that person wants to leave the university so they are automatically no longer as fully invested as everybody else from the outside looking in. And it's just, it, it does no good. I will say I've been hearing eight to 10 names. Um, I was hearing DJ Harvey for about maybe five weeks. I don't think that really should have surprised a lot of people. The writing was on the wall there for him. Um, you know, losing some playing time and being passed by freshmen. I just, you know, he, he, his two main roles that he had kind of carved out, he he didn't have them at the end of the season. So I think the writing was on the wall there for him. And, and there's writing on the wall for a few other guys as well. So I think you'll see – you'll obviously see some names coming up here in the next week or so. Um, like Pry said in his, in his press conference, he's going to meet with a bunch of players individually and their families and their coaches and give honest feedback – I think that's a great idea. I think that's a great thing. Fuente did something very similar. So it's not something that's new to Virginia Tech or new to coaching. I just think it's refreshing that that coaches can give honest feedback. Um, and if you're a player that isn't up to snuff at Virginia Tech, they can help find you a place where you can get more playing time. Um, now, if you're somebody that says, I want to get my degree, I have a you know, 3.5 GPA and I'm staying at Virginia Tech, there's not much they can really do at that point. Um, but I think a lot of players want to play. They'll see the writing on the wall. They'll have some honest feedback. Virginia Tech is already over the numbers. Um, we have a, a, a story coming out on this in the, in the near future, but Virginia Tech's already over scholarship numbers for 2023 with the class that's coming. That means automatically players need to leave just to sign the 2023 recruits. There is no 25 man cap. So that doesn't matter. All that matters is staying under 85. 
can only have 85 scholarship players on the roster at a single time. So if Virginia Tech signs, they're at 80. If, if they hypothetically were at 85 now and they signed 25 in December, they need 25 to leave before those 25 enroll. Uh, so that's kind of how this thing works. So that'll be through natural attrition, through graduation, through NFL, or through transfer portal, or uh, you know, a medical retirement of football. Is essentially the five five ways that that you clear up the roster space. So when you when you hear me talk about on the message boards or other people talk about numbers will always work out, you're going to see people leave. They have to leave in order to sign the players that are committed or to sign guys from the transfer portal. Sometimes these kids leave under their own fruition. They want a better opportunity somewhere else. Sometimes they are urged to leave to free up roster space, the ugly side of the transfer portal. Either way, this stuff has to happen. There are people out there, I've seen it all over on social media. I've seen a little bit of it on the message boards talking about if a lot of people leave, it's indicative of pride in the, the locker room and the culture. I would say typically that can be true. That is not true when you're going through a full roster rebuild. He's been honest about it. I try to be as open and transparent as I can about it. There will be a big wave of players leaving. You'll see them here in the next probably week or so start to enter once December 5th hits and the, the portal officially opens for FBS prospects. But understand that a lot of this is going to be addition by subtraction and it's not really indicative of the coaching staff they need this to happen it has to happen for roster turnover Uh, i'm not going to name names either but i think everyone who listens to this podcast is um, intelligent enough to do what i just did and go through the roster and you can i i mean at this point of the portal you understand that people transfer more freely than before so like you look at it as like would would i really be surprised if this guy transferred i counted 24 guys right there that would be on my not very surprising list whether they're just have never whether they're getting later in their career and have never really found the field whether you know even a redshirt freshman that you know trusted trusted the process for a year uh, trusted the redshirt process and then didn't play much this year guy who played a little bit early gets surpassed um sees the snaps um evaporate as the season goes on like like it's not crazy to identify um you can look at the roster and find a good chunk of players i'm not saying 24 dudes are gonna leave that's that that's definitely the number that's just the the group of of players where you look at it and understanding where today's transfer portal era is like any one of them put their name in the portal, it would just be like, yeah, I, I can see that's that makes sense. That's that's not surprising. But but actually, Bud Elliott actually talked about this a little bit. He did a video on Twitter, and if uh, if you all don't listen to Bud Elliott, he's he's really good with his national podcast. But he said that there's going to be two. We're going to see a transfer portal we've never seen before because of two reasons. Um, and I'm going to add in a third for Virginia Tech. But the two reasons he said were NIL. There are players who, college football players right now, who did not get to experience NIL money when they were in the recruiting process, and they want to experience that. They've played themselves to a to what they believe is a market value. 
and they want to test the market and see what money they can bring to the table to them and to their families. So I think that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is during COVID, players committed and signed with with programs they had never visited. They had never stepped foot on campus. They maybe had never even seen the coaching staff face-to-face. When that happened, you get your kind of your one-year on-campus orientation. Then you, you probably redshirted through there. And then this is the year you really decide, do I fit in this system? Do I fit at this school? Do I fit in this major? Do I like the academics? Do I like the location? Is it a grind on my family to come see me? And that, I think, is going to drive a lot of people to the portal as well. Then for Virginia Tech specific, I think the transition from Fuente to Pry, whenever there's a coaching change, there's always players that will say, I fit better in the previous system. I wasn't recruited by this guy. I feel like this guy's going to recruit guys that are coming and going to play over me because they were recruited by this staff and I was recruited by the old staff. And I think that's going to drive people to the portal as well. So when the FBS portal opens, we're seeing guys enter now or put their names out now that they are entering. They can't be contacted and officially in the portal until December 5th fifth sure uh, for an fbs yeah. program sure yeah i mean go by the ncaa laws now we all know nobody pays attention to that, right they cannot the the portal does not officially accept their name until december 5th so that's kind of the the, the holding process right now now that doesn't mean they don't have an nil agent working deals behind the scenes with a bunch of different schools doesn't mean their trainers, their coaches, their parents, their best friends, their girlfriends, their whatever are not talking to other schools for them. doesn't mean that they're not directly talking to other coaches and just not saying anything about it because there's really no oversight whatsoever. But their name can't officially go in the portal until December 5th. That's when I think we're going to start to see an explosion. seen a little bit of an explosion in the last few days nationally. That, I think, after championship weekend is when the portal is going to be hopping and Wild Wild West really begins. That's when visits are going to start. And then you'll know, I mean, just like Doug mentioned, you'll know as a kid will commit at you know 6 a.m. on December 5th to a school, you know that there was tampering involved. They've already prearranged that arrangement. We all know that's happening, right? Like there's no no real secret to it, but the fifth is when they can officially actually enter their name into the portal. And I'm expecting to see an explosion uh, around the fourth, fifth and sixth timeframe for the, for the portal. It's going to be a wild ride. I think that, I think the other group of players Evan didn't mention was the COVID transfers. Um, they're, they're kind of starting to cycle through, but you've got a chunk of players that have an extra year of eligibility that have been somewhere for four or five years. Um, I'm not saying that Virginia Tech's players at this is, is definitely going to transfer, but those are, that's another group of guys that are like, yeah, you could see them choosing to spend their, their graduate transfer year essentially somewhere else. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. And especially because some schools, especially some of your lower, lower, funded schools maybe can't carry a player for an extra year right like there's a big cost associated with that 
Um, so not only would you have players that would say, like, I've done what I could do at this school. Now I want to find another opportunity. You might have other schools that are saying, look, we can't carry you for another year. Um, and if you look at Ivy's, you know, people have talked about, talked about Ivy's and VMI and programs like that. A lot of their per- players enter the portal every year. Ivy's don't allow redshirting. So you have four years at an Ivy. You get your degree and then you transfer for your for your for your your year. Like so if you didn't play, like they don't allow you to have five years. You have four years at an Ivy and then you transfer out. So you see a ton of Ivy League guys that transfer um, every year as well. So it's gonna be it's gonna be popping, man. It's gonna be interesting. It's that's, gonna be the Wild West. It's, and that's similar to like uh the VMI linebacker kid, Stone. Yeah. Yeah. Where? I really like that kid. Reminds me a lot of Dax. I like him. Yeah, and you know VMI has been decimated by that, and uh, part of it is they don't have a graduate program, but part of it is also they got an extra year, and I don't know many people that are going to choose to spend a VMI is a great school. My brother went there for three years, um, and great school, etc. However, not the most fun school for somebody that gets gifted an extra year of eligibility um, by the NCAA. Dare I beg the question? Does anyone want to go out and say a quarterback on the wish list? Uh, the big name today, obviously, is the Penn State kid. Um, Absolutely. Tyler Bone recruit. Brent Pry involved on the staff there. Um, checks quite a few boxes from in terms of what you need to get involved in the transfer portal. Um Evan probably remembers more of the backstory on his original recruitment, but I think he was on campus a little bit at least. So like, yeah, the, he's the familiarity was there. The, you know, that's a, the trust is, uh, is I assume still there with Tyler Bowen and, and Brent Pry. Like that makes, that's one that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I'm with you. I think that one, that's the one that when it hit, you thought, this it kind of seems if he did if he does go to Virginia Tech it's kind of like this is too easy right like you could easily connect these dots uh, but you know like we've seen with the portal it's it it's going to be a mess it's going to be ugly recruiting and it's going to be really fun to cover and it's going to be a three to four week whirlwind headache stomach ache all wrapped together so it's going to be fun but that's that's the guy. When he entered today, I'm like I'm like Doug. When he entered today, he thought this seems a little, a little too good to be true right now with him and and possibly going to Virginia Tech. So we'll see. We'll see if he can get on campus. See if they can get him on an official and see if they can lock him down. They, those guys can't take officials yet. Um, they can't visit until after the fifth. So we'll see how that all shakes out. Evan, do you know how? What are the rules for transfer visits? Is it kind of the same as high school recruits as far as you get us? Do you get any number of official visits? I don't think that there's a set limit, but I think that most people, most, most uh, transfers keep it, you know, fairly close. They visit a few places, lock in that spot and sign. So right now with the fifth being the, the day the portal really opens and you can take visits and all of that if you you know you move that forward to the 21st is that early signing day like a lot of these guys will want to lock in their spots 
to to move on to enroll in January. So I think you're looking at mid December for a lot of commitments, probably a two week two week sprint of visits and you know hosting coaches at home or or however they want to do it and talking with your family and all of that and then making a commitment. It's not going to be a very long drawn out process. All right. Well, plenty covered on the football end. I think basketball we can briefly touch on here. Virginia Tech beats Minnesota in what will apparently, according to breaking news coming out today, be the final Big Ten ACC challenge done after this year. So, at least Virginia Tech got their points in that final contest. That's what happens when the Big Ten doesn't do a TV deal with ESPN. (laughs) Correct. Business-minded as always, Doug. Yep, yep. But... North Carolina, the game on the horizon, Virginia Tech, 7-1. and one. They lost to Charleston. They almost lost to Charleston Southern. Pretty smooth sailing, I guess, the rest of the way. Virginia Tech currently sitting, I believe, 35-36 in the Ken Palm. Are you comfortable saying that's where they're at nationally based on what you've seen so far? I think maybe they're a little bit better. Is that perhaps a little bit overrated based on what you saw against a team like Charleston Southern? Or is that just the, the byproduct of a Mike Young offense that has a bad shooting night? Uh, that and, you know, I think that's a little bit of the nature of ebbs and flows of a long season. You're going to have a couple, a couple of those in there. Um, Tech looks good offensively. I'm a little on the fence about ceiling for them right now. Um, defensively is where I think there's still some things to sort out, particularly against higher level competition. I think against Carolina is going to be rather indicative of where this team is right now. Um, And then they play Dayton and Oklahoma state after this. So it should be a decent little stretch to test them against uh, better competition before they get into a thick of ACC play. But I think there's got to be a little bit of concern about defensive ability to, to get stops when you're talking about they're about to get into January and February and February and play um, what'll be 19 straight ACC games, three a week, two or three a week. Like um, I, I think, I think that's a big question mark right now for Virginia tech is whether they're strong enough defensively, offensively, they are exactly what you expect. Padula taking the three or four steps forward that you expected after last year. Maddox shoots the lights out still. Um, Justin Muntz is, is, as expected, a very, very good college basketball player. Basili has been, as advertised on the offensive end, I think he's the guy that they keep challenging to try and get him because he's clearly the, you know, him, Couture, Mutz, Maddox, and Padula are clearly the five best. That's that's the best offensive lineup you can put on the on the floor. And I think Virginia Tech would love to play that lineup like 25 to 30 minutes a night, but whether they can get enough stops or whether like a Lynn kid or a, or a Poteet um, is going to be necessary to play a bigger role is, is the question. And I think that's, you know, that's up for debate um, as, as they get into higher comp, better competition, playing better competition like Carolina this weekend, we'll find out. Yeah, and just in general, I feel like Sean Padula's far sur- surpassed like expectations 
for what he was supposed to be. Like, I think many people thought there would be a minimal drop off with Storm Murphy leaving and he's taken it, as Doug said, three to four steps ahead. Um, what's also been surprising is like MJ Collins getting 20 minutes a night. Like out of all the guys on the roster, I think he might be the most underrated in terms of what he brings. Like he's not, I, I don't think he's been great shooting and particularly on the offensive end, but he's just a really long guard that I think they're putting in situations, especially to cover up Darius Maddox on the defensive end. So I think there's, you know, there's still improvement for this team. I think offensively you feel good where they are right now. Um, even, even saying that, like Darius Maddox is shooting 26% from three this year. Like he can definitely improve upon that. And I don't, I don't know if he's taken three to four steps ahead uh, what he was supposed to from last year and especially that postseason run. Um, and then just looking at the other guys like Lynn Kidd and Potot, like I think those two guys, you're kind of bringing them along because they're going to have to be those big rotation guys. I think John Camden was kind of being like, he's kind of like on the outside looking in right now in terms of being in that rotation um, but we kind of see what the picture is for Virginia Tech right now. We feel good what they're doing offensively. I agree. They like it's going to get a lot more challenging, especially facing a lot of these ACC front courts coming up and a team like Dayton. Um, but overall, like I know it was a bit rocky, tumultuous in the Charleston Classic. Like you're not playing on your home court. Every game was close. Even Charleston Southern coming back to Castle Coliseum, like that's just it almost looked like you're overlooking your opponent and just, you know, didn't come ready to play, but somehow found a way to win. Like, I still think this Virginia Tech team is, I, I 100% agree that they're probably a, a, a top 35 team. Um, I don't agree that they're like top 25 at the, at the moment, but I do think, like, given where they need to make their strides, I think they can end up there. tournament percent chances based on based on what you've seen so far i think it's still pretty good um about what i expected i mean i think they're a tournament team um i'm not sure i haven't watched enough of the rest of the acc to 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 know what's going on kind of in that four to eight range well florida state's not good florida state's terrible that. i know that syracuse i don't think is any good this year um they lost to bryant the other night (laughs) got slapped by bryant um so yeah i don't i I don't have any reason to change my expectation right now i just think that there's a question mark out there about defending at a high level and whether you know whether tech can do that in acc play enough to to get to get the wins they need um i don't know if they have a a marquee non-conference win opportunity left on the schedule maybe oklahoma state are they good i don't think they're any good anymore are they um so i think we'll see but oklahoma Oklahoma state lost to uh southern illinois and ucf um so i don't think they're (laughs) as good as they have been historically um Yeah, so if you, like if this team needs to go twelve and eight in ACC play or thirteen and seven in ACC play to to make a tournament, I'm I'm not convinced yet that the defense is there, um, but 
I, I think they're I think that'll become more and more obvious um here in the coming weeks. I, I feel pretty good about their chances. I think the tough part, like the ACC in general feels down this year, just through the non-conference slate. A lot of teams, um, as John Rothstein would say, losing by games. Um, and you look at it like if you want to get to 12 and 6, you're playing Duke twice, ranked 17th. Virginia's an absolute wagon this year. They're beating everyone, and you play them twice. So those are two uphill battles. And then obviously the big game on Sunday against North Carolina, like those are your five toughest games in terms of ACC slate. But I think other than that, like if you're counting those five, maybe you look at them as as losses, but you know, every other team in the league seems very beatable this year. Um, But with that formula, then you're hoping that, you know, you either take one away from Virginia and Duke. Um, or you're not dropping many games to anyone not named Virginia Duke or UNC. Um, so it is not the easiest path. Um, definitely top heavy this year, though. Yeah, it's actually the number four Ken Palm team in the ACC right now behind UVA, Duke, and UNC. That makes that makes sense. What I've been talking about is defensively, they're 76 in the country right now. Um, so that's to me, that's the big question as far as whether they hold up in ACC play or whether they become kind of that middle of the road bubble team. But I think it feels like bubble team is probably the floor for this team. Like they're going to be in the mix. They're either going to be in or right around, right around the bubble, which is classic Virginia tech basketball spot to be in. So I wouldn't be surprised if that ended up that way, but um, yeah. Other than that, I mean, it's about what we expected, at least from the, that core group. Yeah, absolutely. And and like you said, Doug, I feel like between the big test against North Carolina, I mean, we've already seen at least another Power 5 opponent across the way in Minnesota taken care of with relative ease, kind of as expected there. If you're having a ton of trouble with Dayton, you're having a ton of trouble with Oklahoma State, get blown out by North Carolina, maybe the the math changes a little bit there and you start to worry about going into March with that anxiety that Virginia tech fans are so used to. But again, I just don't know if we've seen enough. To, we, I mean, we certainly haven't seen enough to make any declarations definitively one way or the other. All right. Last thing I would tell the conversation here, Nebraska hires Matt rule <laughs> round table discussion here. What what are the boys out in Lincoln think? Uh, it it's mixed. It's really mixed. what? I mean, a lot of people really like it. There Art- is a subsection of the fan base that wanted them to stick with interim head coach Mickey Joseph. I think it's probably and Matei knows Wisconsin football well too. Kind of the same thing that's going on with the Wisconsin fan base, where it's like, wow, this has the chance to be a game changing hire. But a percentage of the fan base wanted to stick with the, you know, football, esteemed alum, interim coach that had some success. Rule was quite clearly an exceptional college football coach. Uh, Temple, Baylor, like quick turnarounds, big time success pretty quickly. Like, um, I 
Like if you're going to hire somebody like that's, that's, that's a guy that is a no brainer hire. If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. It's not because like you made the wrong choice. It just didn't work. Like he's a yeah. really good college coach by every single indication. You would have no reason to expect it would go wrong unless you're expecting a national championship at Nebraska, which would be a problem. I mean, if they're, if they're just fine, be going nine and three, and occasionally playing for the Big Ten championship, Matt Rule probably is a great a great choice for them because that's probably their ceiling as a program. Which I would hope that by this point of their struggles that they that would they would take that in heartbeat. It's actually kind of crazy how quickly he turns around programs like year one Temple, two and ten, finishes with two ten win seasons, like gets Temple ranked. Uh, in the top 25 and then goes to Baylor first year one in 11 like imagine if that were Virginia Tech you know you're talking about a I mean, people are really already losing <laughs> yeah, I mean yeah it's a fair point but turns them around and goes to the Sugar Bowl in year three could Brett Pry be Matt Rule I think well when people are drawing comparisons the funniest thing is people will draw the comparisons to Matt Rule and they'll be like well look year one in Temple he went two and ten Year one at Baylor, he went one and eleven. That means Brent Pry is leading the Virginia Tokies to the Sugar Bowl in year three. That is, I have seen that. Yeah, and to those folks, I will say there are a lot of coaches who have poor starts to their tenure, and there's probably five that have poor finishes to their tenure for every Matt Rule out there. Not saying that Brent Pry can't be that guy. I'm just saying just because someone was capable of a full turnaround does not mean that that is the clear roadmap, but it it is a good point in the, you know, don't give up so soon category, because again, you don't hire a college football coach for what you figure they're going to do in year one. Maybe that happens in the NFL sometimes, you know, when they, when you hire a guy like, uh, you know, Kevin O'Connell in Minnesota or Mike McDaniel in Miami. It's like, I think this guy can do more with the roster that we currently have as constructed than his predecessor did. That's not college. Because in college, you know that half the roster is probably going to transfer out because you made the switch. But nonetheless, yeah, I think Matt Rule is a, uh, he'll be a good fit there. If he can't do it, I don't know who can. Like, you know, they're running out of, uh, options but for a nebraska program that hasn't made a bowl game and it's been more than five years i, I mean that, i mean if brett bielma could take illinois to seven wins and what two seasons like brett bielma is a genius <laughs> that's true offensive genius matt matt rule should be able to take nebraska to seven or eight wins within a couple years three years two or three years like and they should be ecstatic with that like eight wins is fine after what they've been through for the last what 10 years or whatever um i mean make no mistake this the, Nebraska the alternative was was good enough to win six, seven games this year they just didn't yeah well they were good enough they beat to win Iowa. many games last year too and they just lost all the one score games I saw a stat where if Iowa scored 28 points per game, they would be 11 and one this year. Pretty insane. <laughs> um, side note, 
I th- well, I'll say this. I think Matt Rule is currently the second best hire of the offseason in the Big Ten. Uh, Luke Fickle, number one. And just wondering, got to look at Joe Rudolph and be like, I made a pretty good, or he made a pretty good decision jumping ship. Maybe he saw something there. But I really wonder, had he stayed, do you think Luke Fickle would look at a Joe Rudolph and be like, I want you on the staff? Yeah, he's probably still the offensive line coach, but under Joe Rudolph. I mean, under Luke Fickle, though. Yeah, it's kind of crazy to think about. So I'm not saying like anything in terms of like Luke Fickle is going to go some other direction, but um, that would have been very interesting. I'm sure Virginia Tech's offensive line still would have struggled this year, (laughs) but it's just crazy how like coaching paths can can turn out in in just one short year. Definitely made a timely decision there to seriously what they fired Chris after five games. Something like that. Or four or five games. Like, I mean, the, his pay pay got cut and they took his play calling duties away. So with, that probably contributed mostly to it. But, um, yeah, interesting timing there from Rudolph to get out of there right before Chris gets fired. Leva, your stock is high, say. It is the way to do it. It is the way to do it. Meanwhile, is that, is that future Virginia Tech analyst Paul Chris? I mean, honestly, he's got yeah, better yeah. things to do. <laughs> some uh, having some analysts, I don't know, can we even afford analysts? We probably can't afford analysts. An analyst on a big time buyout from their previous university that's that true. Because yeah. I guess, as an analyst, all of your whatever you're making is taken away from your buyout, so you're making the same regardless. Yes, yeah, so Tech could pay him a hundred grand, and he'll get, that just offsets it by a hundred grand. He still gets the the other money. Yeah. Maybe more right. likely that it's future Alabama analyst. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> the rehabilitation factory. Yeah, Saban's preparing for a shift back to the power running game. Spread offense hasn't worked too well. <laughs> I mean, they lost two games. It's a disgrace. People are saying they'll never watch another game under the current offensive coordinator. That's what the Alabama boards are saying. But in all seriousness, though, if there is money in the budget for an analyst, I think this team could benefit from a third-party voice with previous head coaching experience, a Jerry Kill type, if you will, given the, uh, the bumps in the road and the adjustment to the head coaching world that we saw this year for Coach Pry. Yeah, I mean, like, you got to get it right in year two, all right? You get, you, let's be honest, he's getting a pass for some bumpy, bumpy decisions there in year one because of a first-time head coach and learn from it, optimize the structure of the program and how they do things, all the stuff he talked about this week. But, like, you're not getting a second chance. <laughs> it's um, It's go time now where, like, I mean, I'm not saying that this is likely or anything, but the coaches get hired after two years. I mean, get fired after two years or less than two years because it's clear it's not working. And like, so I think it's no stone left unturned. If he thinks he's got it right, if he thinks that the adjustments they made and all that stuff, you know, I think giving Chris Marr the defensive play calling duties was the, was a clear move to make probably earlier than he made it. 
Um, but like, if he thinks that, it's still probably a good idea to bring in somebody to be like somebody who's done it before and been there before and seen a ton of situations to say like, "Yep, moving right along." Like, pay some pay some former head coach one hundred twenty five grand to come in and say, "Yep, you're doing everything right." Is probably worth it this year just to make sure because like it's going to get it gets dicey pretty quickly without a success without progress next year look at that our end of podcast conversation turned back to virginia tech football in a somewhat productive way rather than just like saying would we lose to uconn kind of deal but uh actually <laughs> real last question here all right USA advances to the round of 16. Doug Bowman, someone who keeps U.S. soccer in his Twitter bio 24-7, 365, baby. This is a real U.S. soccer. We're going to win the World Not Cup like the rest of you scrubs out there who don't know any yeah. player on the team except for maybe Pulisic. I fall into that category, by the way. But, Doug, 10 a.m. on Saturday, the Netherlands, the only thing standing between the United States of America and an Elite Eight appearance. I'm sure that's not what they call it in the World Cup, but that's what I'm going to call it. Can I mean, it be done? The, the quarterfinals? Um, I mean... Will it be done? You can... This, now we're at the point of the tournament where you you can't expect to, to advance um, based on your opponent. The Netherlands is clearly a better soccer country than the United States. The U.S. is getting there. Clearly, they're most best team most talented team they are well positioned to win the 2026 world cup on united states soil for sure that's a lock in my opinion um but i don't know that they're quite there yet uh especially against a team like netherlands it's not like they're not playing like uh spain or or brazil per se so there is a chance um but it's like at this point it's an uphill battle when you get this deeper this deep into the tournament um so you know my my expectations were that they get out of the group and they had to get out of the group otherwise you'd be disappointed now you're just like hoping and praying basically like like so was it a binary for you like had this game been a tie today against iran they don't get out of the group failure Yes. They win one nothing. They do get out of the group. Success. And it's that binary because now they're at the point where you can't really expect anything more. Yeah. But Berhalter, Berhalter said it before, and you can nitpick a lot of things he does, especially not playing Gio Reyna very much. But um, it's two tournaments. The World Cups is two tournaments for, for the United States, at least. For Brazil, for Germany, for those for that level, it's one tournament. It's to win the World Cup. That's it. Um your your disappointment levels are either like pretty disappointed we didn't win and extremely disappointed we didn't get to the final or the semifinals or if they don't make it out it's a colossal like catastrophe for the united states it's two tournaments one get out by any means necessary figure it out from there if you if you go on a little run here great um but i think at this at this stage of where we are um getting out is still is still a monumental achievement or a good achievement meets expectations not getting out at this point would be a disappointment let me ask resident expert doug this question 
god u.s soccer podcast here we go <laughs> who are you inside like, the tunnel works for a soccer podcast too as a yeah. title yeah who would you, who do you think is a stronger team england or holland i think england is um netherlands peak was probably 2014 with robin and van Persie and those guys they i don't think they're as deep as deep as they were then um while england has definitely taken a step forward recently and went to the what was it, the finals of the euros and the semifinals of the last world cup so they've got the more recent success so you know United States did play England pretty well, so that's what I'm you, saying. Are you talking me into it? Are you talking me into it? Curious as to what the betting odds are. I think I saw, um, like, well, now you get to the point of it's like plus four hundred to win, or plus like one seventy, I think, to go through because now you're the knockout stage and it'll go to PKs and you'll get screwed by by going to PKs instead of an outright win. Um, so. Oh, so you have to pick. That's what I saw. I saw one that was Moneyline 400 and then one that was so they plus died. 170 to go through. So I'm I, curious if they offer. Someone's going to offer just a binary, like who goes through. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you'll be able to find that on your local betting site. It's true. Unfortunately, I live in North Carolina. I think so oh, God. I can no longer be a degenerate. I've saved myself a lot of money. Uh, is Doug Bowman going to be watching the game in public or is he going to be watching it in private? Is, is it too stressful to be I watched the with, first, the, with the peasant fake soccer fans? I watched the first two in public and then today in private. Well, today did happen in so, I mean, the middle of a, It's on me. Know, well, I took work I, Tuesday. I took both weekday games off. So, but um, I don't know. That's dedication. I mean, it's the World Cup. It only happens once every four years. Have you ever taken off for like a CONCACAF Gold Cup (laughs) group play? No. Those are at 7 o'clock at night, reliably. There. Except when you play like Granada or something, and they put it at 3 in the afternoon when it's the hottest temperature. At which point, anyways, bosses know he ain't showing up. You got a doctor's appointment. Yeah. Yeah, so, but it's, it's it's fun, fun tournament. All right, well, we're all pulling for the United States of America. I hope. Did my did my birth country advance? I haven't even checked. Japan. You were born in Japan. Yeah, I actually find something out new every day. I never knew that. Yeah, I was <laughs> in, born in Japanese soil. Born in Tokyo. You might be the first Japanese-born weekly call into nebraska <laughs> i don't know where i'm going with this i it's think like japan plays later they play on pretty um, historic they play on a thursday and it's gonna be tight i think it's they play spain and it's, it's spain japan croatia or no that's costa rica and germany all have a chance so tune in thursday Exciting stuff. Exciting stuff. All right. So it's, it's kind of like a Marvel movie, right? Because this podcast has basically lasted the length of some movies. But if you make it all the way to the end of the credits, you get a preview for something on the horizon. Eric Strickland. Remember the name, folks. 
Inside the tunnel, VT Scoop 24-7 Sports, Andrew Alex, Doug Bowman, Evan Watkins left a long time ago, if you haven't noticed, but he was here too, the head honcho. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us. We will be back. I mean, I don't know. Early Saturdays coming. coming I got to I gotta figure out. I mean, with Connor Blumrick departing, bid thee farewell. We got to find someone <laughs> new to a, rally around. Should we do a Connor Blumrick farewell episode? Yeah, and I got to find someone to s- support. So we'll do that next week. <laughs> Once a transfer. Comes Honestly, in. like I'll I'll DM him like right now and see if he wants to come on. I'll be like, dude, I don't know if you know this, <laughs> but. We talk about you every week. You are, your picture is the group photo for the VT Scoop group chat. How does that make you feel? <laughs> we'll find out next. <laughs> All right, we're rambling. It's over. It's done. Sayonara, folks. Uh, as always, VIP subscriptions and go Hokies.